Thanks for bringing the church into this building. As I say, I think every week, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, as Jason said, glad that you're here. Uh, Just a little tidbit, if you weren't aware, uh, apparently the law has changed today. And so when you get in your car, be careful. Don't text people, don't call people, unless you have a fancy car that was made in the last few years that allows you to do that. Um, Sadly, my wife informed me of this change in the law a couple days ago that I was not aware of, and she basically asked in kinder words, have you been living under a rock for the last, I don't know, however long? And my answer was, I've been living behind the rock of scripture, honey, and I I just kind (laughs) of leveraged that that pastoral thing um, to my advantage. That, that goes back a couple weeks to the doctrine of justification where you defend and blame shift. And I mentioned that was at the top of my list. So um, if, you're, if you're new this morning and you're unaware, uh, we are currently a few weeks into a, a summer sermon series entitled Cruciform. That word cruciform simply means having the shape of a cross The cross, as I've said over and over again, is the great jewel of the Christian faith. It's multifaceted. As you spin a jewel, it shines with greater brilliance and beauty. And so the goal of this series is is incredibly simple. It's to spin the jewel. It's to see the radiance of that which Jesus has accomplished for us one facet at a time. To, to, To consider that sermon series title, cruciform, shaped by the cross, that's a bit of a play on words because the hope is that each and every one of our lives would be shaped by this cross of Jesus Christ, Christ that we proclaim often as the church. That if we grab hold of what this series is meant to communicate, we will find our lives shaped by the cross doctrinally as we grow in our understanding of these various facets of truth themselves. We will find our lives shaped by the cross personally as we grow in understanding of how these facets of truth matter in our own lives. We will grow in, in, in finding our lives shaped by the cross communally as we understand better how these facets of truth matter in our relationships with other Christ followers. And we will find our lives shaped by the cross missionally as we grow in our understanding of how these facets of truth matter on the mission field of everyday living. All of those things that you just heard me pray a moment ago. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 John chapter 7. Similar to the last few weeks, we'll be all over the Bible this morning, but we'll begin with this verse out of 1 John. As you're flipping there, let me just say this. As it stands, we've taken a look at two of the many facets of the cross that we're going to consider throughout the course of this series. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we looked at the facet of justification the significance of Jesus having satisfied the legal demands of our sin, having taken our guilty record upon himself and giving us his perfect righteous record by grace through faith so that God the Father declares us righteous in his sight. Last week, we looked at the beautiful facet of propitiation, a big biblical theological words that simply has to do with Jesus having satisfied the wrath of God. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, and in doing so, he's changed God's wrath toward us to favor. This morning, we're going to spin the jewel yet again, and we're going to take a look at the beautiful facet of the cross known as expiation. Just like those doctrines of justification and propitiation that we looked at over the last two weeks, you're you're constantly surrounded by the doctrine of expiation simply by being part of this church. We sing this doctrine often in this place. In fact, we just did. Lyrics like, Wretched to the fount I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Or 
For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or we don't have to bear the load. We don't have to have control. We are free from guilt and shame. Because when he rose, he left death in its grave. Or once bound by sin and shame, now slaves to righteousness, our faith perfected by his love. Or, oh, you've come to be hope to this world for your honor and name, and you've come to take sin, to bear shame, and to conquer the grave. Oh, Emmanuel, God with us. Or, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. Or, maybe most famous, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You sing a lot of songs that have to do with this doctrine that we're going to look at this morning in this place. Every one of those songs is a, a beautiful declaration of the facet of the cross known as expiation. And so, as has been the case the last couple of weeks, the question begs to be answered, what is expiation? What does that big theological term mean? Well, expiation, if I could just give you a simple definition... It's the cleansing from the stain of sin on our soul. Let me say that again. Expiation is the cleansing from the stain of sin on our soul. And that includes the shame and defilement associated with the sins that we've committed, as well as the sins that have been committed against us. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. The Bible's filled with words that communicate this idea of sin staining our soul. The idea of sin defiling us, making us unclean. You don't have to go very far in the scriptures to encounter this concept. In the beginning, you have the creator God making man in his own image after his likeness. Created with dignity because we're not on the same level with animals. And yet created with humility because we're not on the same level with God. God declared the creation of man to be very good. There was no sin. There was no defilement. There was no stain on the human soul, which is why God could put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, Genesis 2.15 tells us. That, that language of working and keeping is priestly Levite language. In other words, Eden was not only a garden, but also a sanctuary. Adam was to guard the sanctuary of God as the first priest in human history. Clean undefiled in the eyes of God and thus able to abide in the sanctuary of God. Nothing to hide, nothing to be embarrassed about, no barriers to intimacy. We all, we all know how the story unfolds, right? The first words of the devil of hell, did God actually say? The stain on the human soul came to be by questioning the trust, trustworthiness of God's word. For a split second, Eve's vision got blurred. Eve, you can, you can determine truth for yourself. You, you can live in a world of self-determination. Instead of God's world and God's word, it can be your world and your word. And it's not as if Adam was guiltless, right? If the sin of Eve was one of commission, the sin of Adam was one of omission. He fell asleep on the job. He failed to embrace his priestly responsibility of protecting both God's garden sanctuary and his bride. Following the very first sin in human history, this is what we're told. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
Now, here's what's so significant about that moment in which Adam and Eve realized their sin. It's not as though they were wearing clothes prior to the fall. Right? Genesis 2, before sin ever entered the picture, Genesis 2 ends with these words. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That when sin entered the picture, it wasn't the nakedness of our first parents that changed at all. It was that where they were once unashamed, they now felt great shame. That where there was once no stain on the human soul, there was now the stain of sin. And that stain, that dirtiness, that defilement replaced an unashamedness before God and one another with great shame. And as shame is known to do, it led to hiding. It led to an attempt to cover the stain and the shame associated with it. I would argue that many carpet companies in the world have a a higher margin for profit because of shame. When you think about that, when, when you get a stain on your carpet and you determine we need to get rid of that or we need to replace the carpet altogether, what oftentimes is driving that? Is it not at the top of the list embarrassment? I don't want anybody to come into my home and see this stain sitting right here in the middle of my living room or on the way up the stairs as they make their way up, as we tour the home because they've never been to my house before or whatever it is. And so we call someone to clean up the stain, to, to somehow cover the stain, to deal with the stain because it creates great shame and embarrassment for us. If I could parse this out just a bit. Two weeks ago when we talked about the doctrine of justification, We were talking about the way that sin leads to guilt, which leads to defending, which is legal terminology on both sides of that, guilt leading to defending. When we talked about the doctrine of propitiation, Jesus, our wrath bearer, last week, we were talking about the way that sin leads to fear, which leads to appeasing or placating God to try to get on his good side. When we talk about the doctrine of expiation, which we're addressing this morning, we're talking about the way that sin leads to shame, which leads to hiding. We're talking about the the dirtiness, the stain of sin that leads to shame and ultimately to covering up, to concealing, which is why we're told that our first parents sought to cover themselves. Where they were once unashamed, they were now ashamed and felt this desperate need to try to cover up. That's actually what the word expiation means. It comes from a Hebrew word, kapur or kafar, and it means covering, very simply. And so when we talk about this facet of the cross, we're talking about the covering of our sin. And so, if I could personalize it, if exposure is your greatest fear, if shame is the thing you most associate with your sin, if hiding is the thing you're most skilled at when it comes to your sin, then this facet of the cross is for you. Let me just say that again because I think that's so significant. If exposure is your greatest fear, if shame is the thing you associate most with your sin, if hiding is the thing you're most skilled at with respect to your sin, then this is the facet of the cross for you. We, we all do it to some degree, right? Hiding behind our own metaphorical fig leaves in an attempt to not only conceal our sin from view, but also suppress the shame that we feel, the embarrassment We all have fig leaves, you could say. What are yours? What do you you tend to hide behind? What are those counterfeit forms of righteousness? For some, it's I'm good at my job. 
For others, it's my kids turned out all right. I'm well-read and theologically astute. I'm a very self-disciplined person. I make and manage money well. I give to a lot of really good causes and on and on and on we could go. And I would say that if you're trusting in those things among others to conceal your sin from view, if you're trusting in those things among others to suppress the shame that you feel, then those things are fig leaves. And the reality is that they cannot cover your sin nor your shame. Those things that we cover up with in order to feel better about ourselves are like monopoly money. They're, They're counterfeit. In the presence of a holy God, they blow away in an instant. That you could say man's effort to cover his own sin is an exercise in futility, which is why God does away with the fig leaves and provides animal skins for Adam and Eve, if you go on to read Genesis chapter 3. And that's not simply God's way of saying, you leave the covering of your sin to me because you can't do it on your own. It's also God's way of saying the adequate covering for sin requires the shedding of blood. We talked about this back in the Hebrew series, if you were around for that. The sacrifice of an animal to provide those skins for our first parents. That was a foreshadowing of Jesus' shed blood on the the cross. It's the first foreshadowing of the gospel uh, in visible form, actually. But let me not get ahead of myself. There's another place in the Old Testament where we see the doctrine of expiation illustrated through the sacrifice of an animal, namely Leviticus chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement. It's actually where we see that Hebrew word from which we get our English word expiation. That on the day of atonement, we're told that two goats without blemish, without defect were chosen. Two goats that were uh, clean, you might say, symbolically. And the high priest would slaughter the first goat as a sin offering, which would satisfy God's wrath. Going back to last week, the first goat had to do with propitiation. It was a foreshadowing of Jesus' wrath-bearing work on the cross. The second goat was then taken by the high priest and he would lay hands on the head of the animal while confessing the sins of the people, which was a symbolizing of the transfer of the sins of the people onto the animal. And then the high priest would send the animal off into the wilderness and it would disappear out of sight and eventually die. It was a symbol not only of the carrying away of the people's sins, but also the obliteration of the sins of God's people. So where we get the origin of the concept of a scapegoat, that's actually, that actually has biblical origins, that concept. The sins of the people, along with the dirtiness and, and shame associated with those sins, were taken far away from the people. And in the process, the stain of sin and its impurity was removed from God's sight. When you think of this facet of the cross, think of the biblical language of our sin being blotted out. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. When you think of this facet of the cross, think of the biblical language of our sin being buried in the depths of the sea. Micah chapter 7, verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. When you think of this facet of the cross, think of the biblical language of our sin being removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Psalm chapter 103, verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 
When you think of this facet of the cross, think of the biblical language of God cleansing the stain of sin on the human soul. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That if the first goat on the day of atonement was a foreshadowing of Jesus' wrath-bearing work on the cross... And the second goat was a foreshadowing of Jesus' expiating work on the cross. Lane Tipton, professor up at Westminster in Philadelphia, he says this. He says, the scapegoat is a visual representation of your Savior bearing away your sin into a place where it can never be found again. Very simply put, in Christ, both our sin and our shame have been taken away forever. Forever. Our sins were not taken to the sea. Our sins were not taken to the wilderness. Our sins were taken to the cross of Jesus Christ. That when you read the Gospels, you you get a glimpse of this. When you see Jesus cleansing lepers or people with discharges of blood, those things that we associate with uncleanness, it's a foreshadowing of that which Jesus is going to ultimately accomplish on the cross, where he will not only conquer our uncleanness, but trade places with it. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, here it is, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That for those of us who, like our first parents in the garden, struggle with the dirtiness and shame associated with our sin, Jesus bore our shame. He was spit upon. He was mocked. His beard was plucked out. He was stripped naked and left for dead in a public display of humiliation. To use that Old Testament theme of of unclean people being led outside the camp, Jesus was led outside the city of Jerusalem to the hill of Golgotha to die. Also that you and I could stand naked and unashamed before our maker. No need to run. No need to hide. He loves you at your worst, church. Do you believe that? The gospel actually allows us to put the fig leaves down. It allows us to set aside those counterfeit forms of righteousness, the people and things we hide behind in order to avoid being truly known. God actually offers us something far better than fig leaves. He offers to clothe us in the righteousness of his very son. Hear this because this is the gospel. Being redressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ is the only hope for the sin-stained soul. Let me say that again. Being redressed in the righteousness of Christ is the only hope for the sin-stained soul. That Jesus was shamed on the cross in order to deal with the sins that you're most ashamed of. Jesus bore the stain of sin on the cross in order to deal with the darkest stain of the human soul. In the words of the great hymn writer Horatius Bonar, he says, and this is a a declaration of the doctrine of expiation beautifully, he says, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. 
I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains, white in his blood most precious, till not a stain remains. Or how about these words from the great hymn writer Isaac Watts? Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. That's the doctrine of expiation. One of the many facets of the cross of Jesus Christ. What do you do with that doctrine? I think we've already kind of begun to allude to some things. I'll give you a few thoughts as it pertains to the personal implications of a facet of the cross like this, but I will not pretend that this list is exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. And so as God, by his spirit, reveals things to you, I'd love for you to email me and tell me, hey, here's another personal implication that you didn't even address because there's just so much richness and depth. So let me just attempt to barely step into the shallow end of the personal implications of a doctrine like this. Number one, In Christ, we've been washed. Very simply put, Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Let me ask, do you ever find yourself thinking back to things that you've done along the way and feeling dirty? If you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see the filthiness of sin. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son. That we, the church, make no mistake about it, we are not a bride who wears white because we're sinless and pure. We are a bride who wears white because Jesus has cleansed us and forgiven us by grace. Jesus became the dirtiness of sin so that we might be declared clean. We can rest in that. That's one practical implication. Secondly, In Christ, and this is a big one, we can walk in the light. Coming back to 1 John chapter 1, John says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we weren't created to hide. We were created to know and we were created to be known. Going back to the first two chapters of the Bible, which is, which is why we fight so hard as a church for a culture of transparency and confession. And not just to Jesus, but to each other. Being honest about the sins we've committed as well as the sins that have been committed against us. And and if we can just be honest for a second, that is not easy, right? Can we just call it difficult? It is. There are those who will burn you when you're honest. There are those questions of, you know, what do I do? Do I give a pinky toe? And if that works out well, I'll give a second of my five toes to this thing called transparency and confession. We've got to work that out. We've got to process what it looks like. But to run from it is dangerous, It's not easy. It's much easier to hide. It's much easier to cover up the ugly stuff in our lives with the fig leaves of our choosing. And I would say it's also an incredibly lonely way to live. And I would argue that much of the church in our context is incredibly lonely. Wishing they could put the fig leaves down. Wishing they could open up to others about their struggles. Choosing to carry those burdens and sins on their own. 
Maybe that's you. Again, if exposure is your greatest fear, if shame is the thing you associate most with your sin, if hiding is the thing you're most skilled at when it comes to your sin, then this is the facet of the cross for you. The facet of the cross known as expiation declares that you can actually have meaningful relationships with other followers of Jesus Christ. You can know and be known. You can to some degree. Is it a lot messier? Yes and amen. Is it a lot riskier? Hallelujah. Is there more power and freedom and joy? Yes. That's what John is declaring. When we confess our sin and shame to the Lord, as well as trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, we experience the power of forgiveness and the power of cleansing in a way that we would never know otherwise. Lastly, as far as personal implications, very simply put, in Christ, our sinful scars don't define us. In the words of a fellow pastor, Jesus got scars to free us from ours. That whether it's the scars you've created by your own sin or the scars that have been given to you by other people, those scars don't define you. Jesus' scars do. As I mentioned the past couple weeks, each of these facets of the cross are going to hit each of us differently. For the past three weeks now, we've talked about how the cross deals with our guilt problem, our fear problem, and our shame problem. And it's very possible for some of us to have come through three weeks, the last three weeks, and to go, none of those things speak to what I struggle with most. And, and as I've said for weeks now, that's okay. We're all different. I would say just hang in there in the weeks to come. I'm sure the Lord has something for you. In the meantime, as I've also been saying for weeks now, each of these facets of the cross has both communal and missional value for each and every one of us. That communally, whether or not you struggle personally with shame and defilement and hiding, there are brothers and sisters around you in this very room right now who do. This is the facet of the cross that speaks most readily to their hearts. And by you better understanding this doctrine of the cross known as expiation and how it impacts people's lives, God can use you to breathe life and hope into the lives of other Christ followers. And so I'll just ask, as I have every week of this series, has God brought any brothers or sisters into your life who struggle with deep shame? And I'm not talking about godly sorrow over sin but rather something far deeper and unhealthy and debilitating that fails to grab hold of that which Christ has accomplished for them? Well, what about those who struggle to believe that the stain of their sin could really be removed from God's sight? Who struggle functionally to view themselves as the limitation on the power of the blood of Jesus Christ? What about those who live in constant fear of being truly known by others, living in the midst of the family of God, yet incredibly lonely, you know anybody like that? We can move toward those brothers and sisters with this facet of the cross known as expiation, reminding them that in Christ, the sin-stained soul has been made clean, inviting them to risk knowing and, and being known and leading out in that ourselves by being the lead confessors and repenters to create more of a culture of that. So that our brothers and sisters who struggle with this facet of the cross might experience the power of forgiveness and cleansing in a new way. Lastly, what about the missional aspect of this facet of the cross? How can we use this facet to evangelize? Well, there are a lot of people in the world who are 
filled with great shame over the choices that they've made in this life. I'm sure we all know people like that. There are a lot of people who have given up all hope of God ever seeing them as anything but dirty. And that's the obstacle keeping them from coming to Jesus. The doctrine of expiation declares that there is a God who can and does take away shame. There's a God who can and does make the filthiest of sinners clean. Apart from Jesus Christ, every one of us are lepers. Can we just get that picture in our minds? Every one of us needs to be made clean. But Jesus Christ is powerful to, to cleanse every one of us in this room. It doesn't matter what you bring to the table in terms of your sin. On the flip side, there are a lot of people whose lives are one big game of hide-and-go-seek living behind their own counterfeit forms of righteousness, their own fig leaves. We talked about this back last August, I believe, when we did a series where we addressed the the two-headed monster that we're up against as the church in our context, moralism and suburbanism. And and moralism tells you to play the game of hide-and-go-seek through your own good works by putting those things that look really godly about you at the forefront of display for other people to see. Suburbanism says do the same thing. Just do it through your well-manicured lawn. Do it through your, your new pressure wash siding and things like that, your covenant signage and so forth and so on. I could just keep going. The doctrine of expiation helps us to bring the self-righteous loss to the end of themselves declaring that our own efforts to cover up our sin and shame cannot and will not hold up in the presence of God. It's counterfeit. It's like monopoly money again. But the gospel declares that we have a Savior who redresses his people in his very own righteousness by grace alone through faith alone. And so if you're not a Christian, I invite you to turn to Jesus even now and to be made clean, knowing that you can stand unashamed before God and enjoy making much of him forever. I'll leave you this morning with a story that I read in a book several years back. Getting at the heart of this facet of the cross, the author says this. He says, A friend of mine had been married to a woman he dearly loved for many years, yet they were never as close and intimate as he desired, and he could not figure out why. It was because his wife was filled with shame. She had been molested as a girl, raped as a young woman, and promiscuous throughout much of her teen years. She even cheated on her husband during their engagement and did not share these shameful, dark secrets with him. After many years, she finally told her husband who she truly was, what she had truly done, and what had been truly done to her. The truth devastated her husband, who would have never married her had he known of her infidelity during their engagement, and possibly would have walked away from her as damaged goods had he only known about the many times that she was molested as a young girl, raped as a young woman, and promiscuous in her teens." At this point, she feared that her husband would leave her and want nothing to do with her. Then he did the unthinkable. He left their home, and she didn't know where he was going or if he would ever return. Because he knew the gospel of Jesus Christ, though, he went to the store and purchased for her a new, clean, white nightgown. He returned home and asked her to clothe herself in white, which she did. Then he said that he had chosen to see her not by what she had done or by what had been done to her, but instead solely by what Jesus had done for her to forgive her and cleanse her filth. 
He embraced her and prayed for her, and she wept tears that purified her soul as her sin was scorned by the love of Jesus and her husband. I'll say it again. Jesus Christ is the only hope for the sin-stained soul. He was shamed on the cross in order to deal with the sins that you are most ashamed of. And there is no limit on the power of his blood. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship in a few different ways through prayer. If you want somebody to pray with you, I think that's a really good practical response to a sermon like this to move towards someone else, to move toward the light in that way, to ask someone to to pray for you, to confess those things that you've been holding on to for far too long and to lift them up to the Lord and to trust that, that Jesus has shed blood can deal with those things and the stain and the shame associated with them. So there will be people at the back available to pray with you if you'd like to take advantage of that. We'll also continue to worship through song. As we sing songs and phrases and you see that word shame and the stain of sin and us being made clean, freed from our defilement, I hope that those words just come to life for you all the more as you declare them this morning. And then lastly, we'll continue to worship through the receiving of communion. We take the bread here, representing the broken body of Jesus, and dip it in the cup, representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you just became one in your seat two minutes ago, I invite you as you prepare to come and receive of those elements to to just sit with the beautiful reality, that picture of, of the second goat on the Day of Atonement, being led away, that, that image, that visual of your sins being taken far away from you, along with the shame and the defilement associated with them, out of God's sight as he looks at you and sees you clothed in the righteousness of his son and therefore declares you clean. Sit with that and then come receive of the elements in gratitude and celebration.